Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. As we said last week, Valley Edition is going on hiatus as we develop new ways to bring our listeners the stories and voices of the people who call the San Joaquin Valley home. So today, on our last show for the foreseeable future, we hear from two reporters with the California Newsroom who investigated how Cal Fire fumbled key responsibilities to prevent wildfires despite its historically large budget. And later, we follow up on a KVPR investigation from last year that revealed an alarmingly high death rate at Kalinga State Hospital in 2020. But first, we're going to introduce you to a podcast called Black Gold, Living in the Shadow of an Oil Field. It was written and produced by reporter Esther Quintanilla for her capstone project for her master's degree in journalism at the University of Southern California. And it looks at the health effects of oil wells on neighboring communities in both Kern County and South LA. We're going to play one of the episodes from the podcast, but first, let me introduce you to Esther, who is also joining the KVPR news team as our diverse communities reporter. Welcome, Esther. Hello. I'm really excited to be here today. We are so excited to have you. So tell us why you decided to focus on communities living near oil wells, especially in Kern County. So I grew up in Bakersfield. Uh, Me and my family moved there when I was around six years old back in 2006. And immediately from the get-go, we all kind of had our own different experience with the air. My mom got these really intense rashes on her skin um, and my little brother also had them and he had um, like a lot of nausea a lot of headaches growing up and we could never really connect them to like anything else uh, we just kind of figured that his stomach his stomach was sensitive and I also had my own sort of effects I had a lot of nosebleeds there was one summer where I couldn't go more than a week without having one and There was one night where I had a really bad nosebleed where I was losing a ton of blood. And when I went to the doctor or the ambulance came over to my house, uh, they just said that it was because of the dry air and I was just having like an allergic reaction. But the more that I dove into this project, the more that I learned how contaminated the air is in Kern and what exactly is pumping into the air. I kind of connected the two together and there's a lot of people in Kern and in South LA who have very intense nosebleeds, a lot of intense headaches, a lot of intense skin issues because of their contamination um, of oil drilling and oil refining. And um, I'm talking specifically about Wilmington and the Port of Los Angeles down in LA. So it's kind of the same story everywhere and that's kind of what led me to this project. But there's not a lot of research that pinpoints the effects of oil pollution directly. How did you go about investigating the health effects of these communities? Yeah, so there there really isn't a ton of research. There's there is some research kind of pointing to like the pollution in terms of asthma and the pollution uh, in the air, but not specifically about the the effects of oil drilling. And so I talked to a health expert at USC who was researching the health effects of neighborhood drilling in South LA, mainly from the oil refineries. But there just isn't the same sort of pressure for Kern County to have the same sort of research done on the region on oil drilling. So it was a bit of a challenge to find recent research that had exactly what I was looking for. But that's kind of the name of the game because there just isn't much research being done. Well, let's take a listen to the third episode, which discusses some of the work researchers have done in the South Valley area, and it also talks to community members about their experiences. 
There aren't many official studies that show how harmful it is to live near oil derricks, refineries, and drilling sites. Kern County is rich in its resources. Dairy farms, cattle farms, fruits and vegetables, all of those can add to scarcity and pollution of the air and water. So it's hard to pinpoint who's to blame. Juan Flores, who works for the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment in Kern County, puts it this way. Say, for instance, right, that I go to the Board of Supervisors and I said, look, oil drilling is doing this to me. Folks that are, that are friends with the oil industry are going to get up and they're going to tell you, no, you know what? It's, it's not the oil well. It's actually the pesticides that they're applying on the fields next to your house, which happen to be where the oil wells are at, right? And then you go and say, all right, so agriculture, pesticides, right? Agriculture is going to get up and it's going to say, nah, not really. It's actually the oil wells. The finger pointing hasn't helped residents understand why they're sick. That's why researchers like Dr. Jill Johnston and her team at USC went door to door to find the effects on living near an oil well. There's this growing body of evidence um, around sort of respiratory health, both lung function and people have looked at asthma ER visits and, you know, exacerbation of asthma. In that 2021 study, they found there was a link between lung functions and living near an oil well. The participants in her study who lived near an oil well had higher rates of wheezing, eye and nose irritation, sore throats, and dizziness. Last year, three South LA nonprofits sued the California Independent Petroleum Association, claiming the oil wells were releasing toxic chemicals like methanol, hydrofluoric acid, and formaldehyde into the air in their neighborhoods. There's a lot of other nuisances that can be related to these sites, like all the trucks going in and out, the impacts on parking, you know, just seeing these huge oil drilling rigs that come in. Robert Trainey, the founder of the United Wilmington Youth Foundation, agrees. He's lived in Wilmington, California all his life. It's a port city where thousands of trucks carry refined oil to destinations across the country. I mean, we got a container yard on every block as high as five containers high. We have truckers that are going through our residential areas, the containers falling off the truck and smashing cars, running over people, destroying property, destroying stop signs, signal lights, curbs, when they take a turn in a specific area. Adding to the pollution of air and soil, water can be contaminated too. They're called holding ponds. They put a lot of the wastewater that could leach into the ground. There can be spills and that can go into both surface water systems as well as potentially leach into groundwater. And so communities that are reliant on groundwater sources could face another kind of pathway of contamination. Experts say the most serious problems are found in rural areas where people farm. They're drilling and there's dust blowing all over the place. And you see every single one of the oil workers with this protective equipment 30 feet away were these farmers picking up the grapes with no equipment whatsoever. Flores worked long hours picking fruits and vegetables under the beating heat of the sun in Kern County. When he finally went on break, he remembers washing his hands in what could have been contaminated water. I noticed that it was very common for the irrigation system being dropping water on the, on the grapevines and the foreman screaming lunchtime. And everybody would go to these hoses and wash their hands and then go eat. And, and when you don't let them know ahead of time, don't touch the water, they don't know. And many who live near oil fields don't know about the potential danger there either. There have been claims of environmental racism. So there's this correlation between systemic marginalization and the amount of environmental protections that we can observe around many of these oil drilling sites. Many of the communities in California that are living in close proximity to oil and gas drilling are also environmental justice communities are impacted by multiple sources of both environmental pollution as well as social stressors. Latinas are the majority minority in Kern and Los Angeles County. 20% of Kern's residents and almost 15% of Los Angeles's residents live below what is considered poverty. The refineries in Wilmington provide jobs for over 30,000 people. More than 19 million gallons of gas are distributed by the refineries in LA County each year. That amount of gas alone fuels over 6 million cars. On top of that, they provide over $6.5 billion in revenue. 
There's no denying that many of these oil companies do good for their neighborhood. They bring high-paying jobs to the area and do charitable things for its residents. Valero's Wilmington Refinery is a member of Success by Six, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on providing access to early childhood education. Valero also partners with local organizations like the LA Harbor Boys and Girls Clubs. The refineries also provide scholarships and grants for students, local organizations, and small businesses in the area. Despite his concerns for the community's health, Trainee understands the oil companies aren't all bad. They're the only ones who reach out and at least try to help youth organizations in the community. I haven't really been approached by anybody else ever. Nobody comes, steps up. Because we're a grassroots organization, you know? We're not like Boys and Girls Club, YMCA. Trainee says he doesn't want to get rid of the refineries completely. That's millions of jobs. You're just not going to displace these people, and I don't think that's right. I think that they serve their purpose, because not everybody's driving a damn electric car right now. And in some of these communities, folks can't even afford a car. They walk or take public transport. They need these jobs, and they don't have time to advocate for their own safety. Wow, this is fascinating work you've done. It sounds like community members are really concerned, but there's also a lot of pushback from those who are really benefiting from the oil industry. There's a lot of passion within the community to make some real changes that will help a lot of people. The Center of Race and Poverty and the Environment, the Sierra Club, other local organizations are really advocating for the population safety and their health. I think the county is starting to listen to those organizations and those voices a lot more, but there's still a lot of changes that need to happen in the future. And um, there's also issues with the public being able to see what private oil companies are doing. As you know, there were some wells recently in Kern County that were leaking methane, and there's been a little bit of accountability being taken by the owners of the wells. And so I'm really hoping to see some real progress, some real policy changes in the future to really advocate for the safety of the current population. Well, Esther, we so appreciate you sharing your reporting with us, and we definitely are looking forward to hearing more. Thank you so much, and welcome to the KVPR News team. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to uh, start working here and reporting for the Fresno community. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. It's hard to imagine, but the number of forcibly displaced people around the world is more than 100 million. 100 million people who have fled their home countries because of war, violence, and persecution. Each year in June, World Refugee Day honors those who are trying to rebuild their lives elsewhere. And for the first time, FIRM, or Fresno Interdenominational Refugee Ministries, held its own World Refugee Day celebration on Wednesday with music, dancing, singing, and information tables. The KVPR news team produced this audio postcard. My name is Tony Buntapanya, and I'm the director for the community garden program and the bookkeeper at FIRM. We are refugees from Laos that uh, we came here in 1983, so it's more than half of my life, so this is my country now. <laughs> the United States is make up a lot of race and a lot of people from different countries to be uh, to united together, you know, to join together. That's why it's, it's very important for us to celebrate the World Refugee Day. Uh, we find so much richness in, in learning from one another and also seeing what we have in common. I'm Christine Barker and I'm the Executive Director of FIRM. Fresno has been this historic landing spot, this historic home uh, for Southeast Asian communities, uh, for Eastern European communities, uh, that we've had a historic Ukrainian and also greater Slavic community here in Fresno. My name is Olina Komisarova. 
I'm from Khmelnytsky. This is Ukraine. This is not center Ukraine, but this is so like I so love my city, Khmelnytsky. Yeah. This is give me chance present the Ukraine again and say what is this is beautiful country because a lot of people never to visit the Ukraine. The Ukrainian people usually have their so open heart and every time just help one to another. My name is Benjamin Batida and I'm a library assistant at the Central Library downtown. This outreach was kind of a really natural outcropping of what we are already kind of doing at the library. Yeah, almost 40 people so far. Um, we're giving away reading logs for the summer reading program for children. There's probably about there's probably about half children that we've talked to today, which is pretty cool. The library is really kind of the last bastion of you know like democracy in the country. And also we have literacy services that. Uh, teach English. My name is Isariala. I'm from Thailand. Um, I've been here 20 years. So we call newcomers uh, new Americans. Even they still be a permanent resident or they just come in the first day in, in on land. We, we call them new American and then we have the resource for them. Salim Siofi. I am the volunteer coordinator. We work a lot for the refugees and we're always welcoming refugees so it's a good day and time to celebrate with everybody here and just tell them hey welcome to the country welcome to your home your new home welcome to a safe place for you to start fresh again your new life and your journey the story of refugees is a familiar one to kvpr reporter sarith hawk her family came to the United States as Cambodian refugees in the 1980s, and her experience with that has inspired her latest project. Sarith joins me now to talk about it. Sarith, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Kathleen. So can you tell us about this project that you're working on? Yes, it's pretty exciting. I'm, I was recently granted a fellowship with the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism. So it's a partnership with KVPR that allows me to explore a story about mental health within the Cambodian refugee community. I was inspired to look into it because uh, mental health has been a huge concern that's very prevalent in the Cambodian community, given that thousands sought refuge in the United States following the Khmer Rouge genocide. Now, some may or may not remember, it happened in Cambodia in the mid to late 1970s. Um, it was a pretty brutal regime led by Pol Pot that ended in the deaths of about 2 million Cambodians. And those who survived still live with a lot of PTSD from that time. So what made you want to do this story now? You know, I started thinking about the lasting impact of that trauma during my work outside of journalism, actually. When I worked as a Cambodian interpreter, this was several years ago, I would interpret for Cambodians in medical and social service appointments, and I really saw firsthand how so many people still suffered from, you know, whether it was mental or physical or emotional impacts related to the war, um, even decades after they had resettled. Um, and in my experience within my culture, I knew that mental health wasn't really something that people talked about. Um, it's always been hidden or carried a stigma. So when the opportunity came to apply for this fellowship, you know, I really saw it as a chance to look into a subject that's plagued my community and to explore how Cambodians are accessing mental health care now. And, you know, also just what's in the news lately, there was really a sense of urgency to tackle this subject with all the recent conflicts in Ukraine and Afghanistan. It really reminded me that war trauma can have a lasting impact on anyone. I mean, here we are, more than 40 years after the Cambodian genocide ended, and the effects are still widely felt by survivors. You know, Sarith, I have to say, this project is so fascinating and so important. What have you found so far in your reporting, and, and what kind of stories can we expect to see from your project? 
Thanks, Kathleen. I appreciate that. Um, You know, I found that it's a subject that hasn't been really studied or talked about very much within this community. There isn't a lot of data that's available, and it seems the story of Cambodian refugees has kind of been forgotten, like swept under the rug. So I'm, I'm taking a fresh look at how the community is dealing with trauma now. And specifically, I'm looking at how some community and cultural events in Fresno have brought people together. Um, I've also explored another program in the Bay Area that's been in operation for the past 20 years. And that program is really designed to target the needs of Cambodian refugees in terms of therapy and fostering a sense of community. And, you know, I found so far that's the theme I keep coming upon is the importance of healing through community. Can you share any challenges or or anything that you've learned along the way? Yeah, you know, I've been, uh, you know, deep diving into this project for a couple months now, and I've really learned the importance of connecting through language. Um, I'm fluent in Cambodian, and I, I have to say it's something that I've taken for granted kind of growing up, but I found that has been really instrumental in my reporting for this story. Um, the people who went through the most in the genocide and can articulate what they remember are all of the older generation, and Cambodian is what they're most comfortable speaking. So it's given me a lot of access into their lives, and I'm excited to share with our audience really what the language sounds like. Um, It's really beautiful and perhaps hasn't been featured this way in a public radio format before. Um, So aside from the production, which will be a bit more complicated than producing an English language piece, it's, you know, also daunting because I feel this great responsibility to tell their story in a way that's authentic to them. Absolutely. Well, when can we expect to hear more about your project? You know, I'm still gathering some of the interviews I need, but I have most of it. And really, it's about putting it all together at this point, you know, which is a lot easier than it sounds. So we should expect to hear this series in September. That's the publishing date. And uh, so stay tuned. Well, I cannot wait. Sarith, thank you and good luck. It is a huge project, uh, but I know that you are the best person to do it. And we are all looking forward to hearing it all come together. Ah, thank you so much, Kathleen. I appreciate it. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A months-long investigation by the California Newsroom into how CAL FIRE is spending its historically large budget found that the department could be neglecting key responsibilities like forest management ahead of another potentially catastrophic fire season. To learn more, I spoke to the journalist behind the investigation, CAP Radio's Scott Rod and KQED's Danielle Venton. So before we dive into the specific findings of your investigation, I, I really think the best place to start is the change in culture and the change in focus that has been playing out inside of CAL FIRE. Danielle, I'll start with you. Can you break down how the agency has transitioned from a focus on forced management to a focus on firefighting? Yeah, CAL FIRE is a very old agency. Their origins reach back to 1885. And up until oh, about 30 years ago or so, maybe 20 years ago, they really focused both on forestry and resource management and on protecting California from fires. I spoke with Richard Wilson, who led the department back in the 90s. He's 90 years old now. And he said that when he was at the helm, he really made sure that forestry was one of the was one of the department's priorities. And that after he left, he witnessed a culture change where there was much more emphasis and a greater portion of the budgets spent on fire suppression, on fighting fires. And he he actually advocates for Cal Fire's forestry responsibilities and resource management responsibilities to be to be taken away from it and split out into, into another government agency. You know, I think something that is sort of symbolic of this culture shift is if you go on the Cal Fire website and you look at their the photos of their executive roster lineup, 
Um, all the chiefs prior to Wilson, and including Wilson himself, are in business attire. They're wearing suit and ties. And all the chiefs after that are portrayed in sort of paramilitary uniforms with, with bright badges showing. When we asked the new chief, Joe Tyler, if he had seen this culture change too, he said that that he had uh, in his time at the agency and that he felt the agency used to give a greater priority to managing forests, to managing land, and that he wanted to help rebalance those priorities. Scott, can you explain how the agency actually rebranded in order to reflect this change of focus? Sure. So the department is officially known as a Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. And in 2006, there was a push by the firefighters union within the department to rebrand itself as Cal Fire. And the argument they made was they felt they were a firefighting department and their name should reflect that. And there was actually some hesitation, some concern about this name change, specifically from the department itself. They were concerned initially that this name change would obscure their forestry and resource management responsibilities. Ultimately, the law did pass, allowing the department to rebrand as Cal Fire, even though on paper they keep their official longer name. And experts have said they feel as though that those concerns about the forest management and fire prevention obligations of the department falling by the wayside have come true. And so that the tension over the over the department's focus and responsibility really is embodied in the way that its name has evolved over time. Cal Fire is awash in funding right now, thanks to a historically large budget allocation. Can you break down uh, briefly what some of the key findings were in your investigation in terms of how that money is being allocated? Sure. So last year, the state allocated $1.5 billion for wildfire resilience and forest health. And the bulk of that money did go to CAL FIRE. Some went to different state agencies as well. And we found that the state is moving to try to get this money out the door. It has, it's moved uh, over half of it out the door and committed it to projects and initiatives. And what that means is they've identified where they want it to go. Uh, but they ultimately have up to seven years to spend a lot of this money, and that's longer than most state budget allocations. And, you know, that's, on the one hand, experts say that's that's good because it gives grantees, folks on the ground who are going to be doing work like prescribed burning and cutting fuel breaks and clearing brush from overgrown forests, it gives them more time to do this work. I have also heard from some experts who say there's a little concern that maybe that is too much time. There's some there's urgency behind this and we should be moving quickly. One of our main findings was looking at hiring. And we found that in recent years, Cal Fire's hiring for firefighters, the people who go out and you know attack fires when they're burning and try to put them out, has ballooned. They've hiring has increased by over a thousand to upwards of eight thousand firefighters, and experts say this is important that we have people to fight these fires. But they're concerned that there hasn't been a commensurate increase in the number of folks who are doing forest health projects, fire catastrophic fire prevention projects, again, such as prescribed burning or clearing out brush, we found that there was only an increase of 31 positions for resource management, and that their total was around just over 500 employees. So the stagnation in hiring for folks who can do this work to try to stem catastrophic fires from burning in the first place has been pretty flat, you know, and so experts have voiced concern about that. And they said that they would like to see many more folks who are doing the work before fires break out to try to help curb this crisis. Danielle, do you want to follow up on on that and maybe provide some perspective on why forest management is seen as so incredibly vital to helping protect the state um, in the future? Absolutely. There are Three reasons why California's fires are so much worse than they have been in previous decades. One is climate change. Another is that more people are living in the path of fires. But a third is the state of forests themselves. And when uh, 150 years ago, white settlers 
um, did away with Native American practices of regularly setting areas on fire through cultural burning and tending the land in that way, we have enormously overgrown forests and wildlands. And so forest management and vegetation management and caring for the land is a really important ingredient in reducing our, our wildfire risk in this state. So I want to commend both of you on this reporting. Um, you spent months tackling the, a very complicated story. And, and one of the things that I want to really uh, applaud you for is, you know, the state allocated money to, um, you know, deal with wildfires, the state passed legislation. Um, and then that's the point at which most of us kind of check out, we stop paying attention, but you didn't, you stayed on it. And one of the things that you found is some real concerns over accountability and um, reporting in terms of the state's progress toward achieving its goals. Scott, can you break down a little of what you found there? Absolutely. It's uh, often required by the legislature to departments and agencies to update them on the work that they're doing. And frankly, in recent years, fire prevention work and forest management work has become a focal point for the, essentially a top priority for what CAL FIRE uh, and other you know, forest management agencies and land manage- management agencies need to be doing. Um, and so the federal government, you know, controls or manages a lot of land in California, but CAL FIRE also oversees a lot of really important land that has to be managed and uh, where resilience work needs to be done. The legislature tasked CAL FIRE with giving them a report every year, uh, going back a decade plus, of what work they were doing on fire prevention. How many acres were they completing? Where were they doing work? What did this work look like? Were there examples of success stories? And then what did they need to do from here moving forward? That would help lawmakers make decisions to decide, you know, how are we going to allocate money? What else needs to be done? Our reporting found that CAL FIRE hasn't completed one of these reports in at least four years. And that leaves a pretty big knowledge gap when it comes to figuring out, you know, informing lawmakers, some of the most powerful people in the state who make big decisions, what needs to get done from here. That's a pretty big oversight gap that we found in our reporting. So, Danielle, you brought your findings to CAL FIRE's current chief, Joe Tyler. How did he respond? We asked for an interview with the chief for about a month, um, and we were granted one. And I have to say, he was extremely generous with his time and extremely attentive and responsive to our questions. He acknowledged that some of the things that we found did ring true to him. For example, cultural changes within CAL FIRE, and he said that he felt a need to change CAL FIRE's culture further. He acknowledged that he has been aware that it can be very hard for people who work within the wildfire ecosystem to criticize CAL FIRE and that he wanted to change that. And he acknowledged that the agency is behind on certain things, you know, for example, these reports. And we should say that they, you know, we found that they were behind in a number of other steps too, including hazard maps, um, being slow to implement certain laws. The the chief also pushed back on some other opinions uh, from experts that we approached him with. Um, for example, he does not want to see the department split and to have fire prevention responsibilities removed from CAL FIRE. He wants to, he wants to keep that um, under his purview. And he felt that the department was making good strides and that it would continue to make strides under his leadership. Well, I've been talking with CAP Radio's Scott Rod and KQED's Danielle Venton about their reporting for the California Newsroom. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Last July, an investigation by KVPR reporter Carrie Klein explored why an alarmingly high number of patients had died at a state-run psychiatric hospital in Colinga. Many there pointed to inadequate medical care. 
In this next interview, Carrie caught up with Kalinga State Hospital patient Michael St. Martin, who said that in the time that's passed, not a lot has changed. So in calendar year 2021, 21 patients died while in custody at Kalinga State Hospital. That amounts to, it's, it's between 1.5 and 2% of the population, and it amounts to the highest death rate of any state-run hospital or prison, with the exception of one medical prison facility. So that follows after we at KVPR uncovered a similar inordinately high death rate in 2020. So do these numbers surprise you at all? The only thing they surprised me is there wasn't more. More deaths. That's correct. And, and so why is that? You know, you and other patients have told us, and we confirmed, that some medical care is not being provided to patients on the schedule required by law. The state has actually penalized the hospital for that. What else do you observe in your everyday life there when it comes to medical care for the patients? Well, one of the problems with this hospital is, is it's in the middle of nowhere, and it's hardly the place of recruiting posters. So we have doctors that have had their license suspended, have been removed out of the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and this is the only facility that they can work in. Well, you've told me that you spend an extremely high amount of your time advocating for other patients to get medical care as well. Basically, everybody is overwhelmed. We have the average age of the patients within the facility is somewhere around 63. So you have a huge amount of people that have been locked down for several years, uh, in, in most cases anywhere from 20 to 35 or 40 years. And so they tend to be obese, not a lot of mobility, and uh, there's a probably approximately 40 to 45% of the people are diabetic in the facility. They're also obese, so you have a high risk rate here and there's the system is set up supposedly with something that they like to call trauma-informed care so you have the trauma in your life and they're supposed to give you the informed care on what it is you need to do how you have to have how do you interact what you do to create and make your life better they're a master of the trauma they're just not very good at the informed care Hmm. well and you know of many cases of um of men there, and it is only men at Kalinga State Hospital, who have been in, in dire need of medical care and have not been able to get it until, until it reaches a, a, the point of emergency. We have had patients that had skin cancer and have died from skin cancer because there was no one here to do any treatment for it. They literally died from a curable thing, and it got to the point where it was so bad that they just would let them wallow and die of skin cancer. And we should note that, um, you know, in speaking with representatives of the hospital itself, they have uh, said that they they do abide by all regulations for medical care there at the hospital, but they will not comment on specific cases like the things that you and other patients have told us. Well, they're supposed to do quarterly and yearly reviews, but they don't do those things. Uh, Just recently, our doctor on the unit, because I filed with licensing, has started to do quarterly reviews. Uh, a lot of times they'll just change your medication or add new medications without even consulting you. And, and all of us are entitled to informed consent and to be able to do this. So basically my doctor simply told me that I'm really too busy to be able to have to talk to you all the time. I'm just going to do things. Well, I don't know how many people in the community would accept that as medical treatment to have your doctor prescribe to you or change your medication or do something or just basically avoid you because he's too busy. Right. And um, and this is something that, this, that the state has confirmed through their inspections is that the hospital is not always delivering these quarterly and annual exams on schedule when they're supposed that, to be. That's Kaiser Permanente and other medical facilities like to be able to do preventive checkup prior to this. What happens with the hospital is by the time they actually figure out there's something wrong with you, even after multiple times of going to the doctor trying to get treatment, it becomes so cost prohibitive that they spend thousands and thousands of dollars on something that they could have solved for a lot less money. 
And then, of course, this is all about the medical care um, for patients like yourself. But Kalinga State Hospital is a psychiatric hospital uh, designed to rehabilitate, um, you know, what what are mostly sex offenders or what have been uh, convicted mostly as sex offenders and then return them to outside life. So are you all receiving the psychiatric care that's required in order to rehabilitate you? Well, uh, about three years ago, they decided that they weren't going to do monthly teams uh, because uh, they just didn't have enough staff to do that. But statutorily, the requirement says right in it when you're committed that you are to receive monthly teams and they're to ask you every month if you want to participate in treatment. So the solution to that is they ask you in the hallway as you're walking down the hallway if you want to participate in treatment. That's your monthly team to them. And then there are a certain number of hours that are required as well per week. Well, the uh, Illinois federal district court ruled that the minimum amount of treatment is seven and a half hours a week for sex offender-specific treatment every single week. We just did a freedom of information request where we discovered that they were doing an hour a week, but of that, they were only providing 30% of the treatment on a yearly basis. So that meant that People are sitting around, in some cases for 20 years wallowing, waiting for treatment that they have extended out to 20 or 30 years at the cost of the taxpayers. It's $300,000 a year to keep a patient in this hospital receive treatment. Yes, and we'll get to that dollar value in a moment. But we, you know, we have KV, we at KVPR have not independently confirmed the number of hours um, there of psychiatric treatment, but there have been state audits in the past that have identified misused funds at the hospital and also misspent hours and mis uh, miscalculated hours for some of those employees as well. Yes, we discovered when we they did an audit, we discovered that they were missing thirty thousand hours of treatment. Now, they know that they, through the audit, they, they know that the staff provided it. They know that people participated in the treatment, but they don't know who those people were that participated in it. And they have no documentation to show where any of it was dealt with. So you're looking at the state have paid for 30,000 hours of treatment that nobody gets credit for, and those people have to redo the treatment. And so the flip side to all of this, as you already mentioned, is that keeping you there in the hospital is inordinately expensive, far more than keeping uh, keeping inmates in prisons. And so uh, you named a, a dollar value. It's around $300,000 per patient per year. Is that correct? That is correct. And some patients are far more expensive than others that cost a million or more a year to keep here. And that's for what has been found at times to be flawed medical care and flawed psychiatric that, care? That is correct. We have probably... 20 people in this hospital that have dementia that don't even know who their names are and they're being held here but they have to be on one-on-one or two-on-ones with other staff so that drives the price up because they have to be watched 24 hours a day these people could be put in nursing homes and they're not going to be a threat to anybody but because this is a cottage industry that there's Nobody auditing or paying attention to the money. These individuals are locked in a maximum security facility for the rest of their life at the taxpayer's dollar. Right. Well, we will follow up on uh, on the situation at Colinga State Hospital as we get more information and get more data and conduct more interviews. Michael St. Martin, a patient there within the hospital, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with me today. All right. Thank you. And finally, the Fresno Opera and Orchestra Summer Academy, more commonly known as FUSA, marks its 10th anniversary with a pair of free concerts this weekend in Fresno. The festival brings together world-renowned classical musicians with young artists for two weeks of collaboration and performance. To find out what music lovers can expect this weekend, I spoke with FUSA musical director Dr. Thomas Lowenheim. It's got to feel great to have the full orchestra back together for the first time since the pandemic. 
Well, it's beyond great. I mean, overwhelming, incredible. It's just amazing to see all the colleagues back in town and all the colleagues that were supposed to come in 2020 came back this year. It's it's really incredible and amazing that all of them could come back. All of them wanted to come back. Um, of course, seeing many, many students that were before and many students that are back here, but conducting that first downbeat when we had 110 people in the band room, I mean, I didn't think that was ever going to happen again, you know, with the pandemic around, but doing that that uh, we took extreme precautions. We're testing the students every single day. We are all masked, we're not playing. Um, we, we, we're vaccinated, every, every precautions we could take. So we made it possible that everyone who wanted to come can come. And at the same time, we made sure that everybody's safe and careful so we can actually go back to our activities because not having the activities was worse than anything that, that we have experienced. Of course, of course. So one big change this year is that the gala concert will be held in Fresno as opposed to in Los Angeles as, as it's typically been done. Why did you make that change? Well, there's two big reasons. The first one was against safety. At the time when we planned this, uh, Omicron started raging in January and February. And when, when we wanted to see what we can do and what was safe, uh, we knew that we can keep the musicians safe here once we all arrived, that everybody tested, everybody is, is, is staying in our bubble. We didn't feel that, you know, taking, you know, three buses with 140 members of an orchestra to LA, to, to hotels and et cetera, was safe at the time. I mean, I think we might have been able to manage it now, but, but that was the main reason. Also, the Los Angeles Philharmonic because uh, of COVID they started their season instead of in end of August early September they started in mid-October so they extended their season and the hall wasn't available um, we could have gone to other halls but but we just decided why don't we start uh, big this year but keep it safe and then we can plan for the future to return to Disney Hall and we always had two concerts but the other reason is, is this personal is that that Fresno, you know, for the last two years, we didn't have many concerts here. Everything was was locked. And, and this was just an incredible opportunity for us to give something back to the city of Fresno, for us to focus all of our attention on Fresno and Fresno State and, and make sure that that we represent and, and, and give a gift back to the community that has been hosting the festival now for 10 years and been supportive financially and, and, and hosting. I mean, all the faculty are hosted by local people. I mean, it, it really builds this incredible community. It builds this feeling of a family while at the same time having a world-class international music festival here in our town. Well, tell me about the two concerts that are coming up this weekend. Sure. The first concert is on Friday night at 8 p.m., June 24th at the Saroyan Theater. That is our big gala concert. That is the, the crown of, of, of all concerts for this uh, festival. Uh, we will perform with 110, 120 member orchestra. Uh, we'll perform Ravel's La Valse, which is a virtuosic, very challenging piece for the orchestra. Um, based on the Strauss waltzes. He's taking those themes and making them with, with his unique, Ravel's unique colors and percussion and orchestrations. And then the big, big piece this year is Mahler's Symphony Number no. 5, which is very famous symphony, starting with a famous trumpet fanfare. Um, it's an hour-long symphony that, that is like a giant journey um, that Mahler is going through, starting with a funeral and, and then an angry movement. The middle movement is, is similar to Ravel's. It's based on waltzes, so it's it's the center piece of the symphony is, is, is a waltz and, and, and all its variations on that waltz. Then comes the most beautiful and most famous of all Mahler's pieces, the Adagietto, which is for only strings and harp. And it is um, a love song that he wrote for his, his wife, Alma Mahler. And it ends up with a beautiful uh, fugue and, and, and chorale, uh, very triumphant way that to end that, that hour long journey. Uh, this is our big concert and I hope everybody can come. All our concerts are free and you do need to register for that concert. Our final, final concert is then on Saturday night at 7 p.m. here at Fresno State in our concert hall. And that will feature FUSA is actually two programs combined in one. We have a half day program for younger local musicians. They only rehearse for four hours every day. Um, and, and they put together a beautiful orchestral concert as well. And it's going to include strings and harp similar to the Adagietto. Um, and then we had a concerto competition featuring two top musicians from the big orchestra that uh, Daniel Lopez is gonna play Reinecke flute concerto and Matthew Meadows is gonna play Strauss's horn concerto with a full orchestra. And we'll finish the concert with Laval's that we played the day before. 
I just have to note, they only rehearse for four hours a day. That seems That's like exactly a lot to me. That's exactly my point. <laughs> right, exactly. Because most people are like, what do you mean only, right? I mean, and, and, and we have kids as young as five-year-old up to age 15 in that orchestra or 16 even, you know? So, so it's not that that is a low level. On the contrary, I mean, th those kids are excellent musicians. Some of them are competition winners that, that still, um, li like you said, four hours a day is quite a lot for young musicians. Uh, in comparison, our, our, our full-day orchestra starts every day at nine o'clock. And last night, we left at 11 at the end of the final recital. So, so those are very intense days. Um, we modeled it based on, on some of the most beautiful and big music festivals in the United States, like Tanglewood and Aspen. Those are very famous festivals that draw people from all over the world, both to listen and to participate. And all those festivals are intense. They're all day long for two weeks and you basically immerse yourself in music. And the reason that I started this festival is because our students here in Fresno, most of them do not have the means to go to those festivals. They're very, very expensive. And they do not have even the, the, the idea or the, the, the consciousness to, to, I need to go to a festival like that and immerse myself in music to see what it's like to be a musician. And since our students didn't have that in their, in their mind, I brought the festival and started a festival here to give them this experience. 95% uh, of our students are on scholarships. Uh, and we're talking about large scholarships to full scholarships. Um, and, and it's, it's an important experience in every musician's life. And, and it's funny because this year we're having a horn player uh, whose husband was in the festival many years ago. And, and, and she told me this, this year alone that he just got a job as a horn professor and, and, and Fusa changed his life. And she, he, he, he said, you have to go so your life can get transformed as well. And of course, to all our local students, the experience is very similar. Well, in our final moments, I, I do want to come back to something you've said in the past, which is that FUSA really exemplifies your life goal to bring world peace through music. I'd love to just give you a, a few moments to unpack that statement a little bit. Absolutely. The reason that I do all of the things that I do is for world peace. I mean, it sounds ambitious. It sounds insane. It makes no sense whatsoever, but it really does work. If, if someone comes on the first day of a FUSA festival, for example, where you have literally 110 people playing together, uh, and most of them haven't met before, and within three notes or five notes or five minutes, all of them are playing in absolute unison, all of them are on the same page, all of them are connecting and and to have that experience and and then seeing the intermission how people have never met before become best friends in such a short time and all of that is because they're all playing together they're all playing in harmony together and then if you come to the concert on friday to see that energy transform to the audience and suddenly everybody in the room has a common ground everybody in the room is enjoying a similar experience i think that that experience in itself that is what brings people together and and unlike sports where everybody you know people come together but it's always one against there's always something against something in our world everything is so competitive versus within a large symphony orchestra everybody's truly working together towards a common goal and everybody feels the pride of achievement of, of delivering a message of love of peace of togetherness of harmony well, I've been talking with Dr. Thomas Lowenheim, music director of FUSA. Have a wonderful uh, performance this weekend. And thanks so much for taking time to be on the show. And thank you so much for taking the time to interview me and to deliver this wonderful message to our audience. I really, really appreciate it beyond words. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.